Welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. We have, over the last several weeks, been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, chapters 8, 9, and 10, and it's about discipleship and how you come to be a disciple of Christ. In this Sunday, the 27th Sunday of Ordinary Time, we're in chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel, and it's one of those very difficult passages, what they call the hard sayings, about Jesus, marriage, and divorce, where Jesus says, um, that divorce is not permitted. It's not what God wants in the world. But wow, um, lifelong commitment to marriage, uh, to the priesthood, lifelong commitment to anything is a challenge for human beings. Partly, I think it's because we have some very romantic notions about happiness and life that we should be loved, that people should always appreciate who we are, and it doesn't take very much uh, experience of life as an adult to understand that's not always true. And so romanticism, and romanticism especially when it comes to married love. You know, if you look back on the history of marriage, and we're going to talk about marriage in this podcast, if you look back on the history of marriage, uh, especially to the Greeks and the pagans, there's this long history of marriage as a natural uh, relationship between man and woman and with uh, social consequences because marriage is so important um, to the larger culture. And so there's civic consequences where marriage has been controlled by the government, especially in our own time with no-fault divorce, uh, community property law here in, in this jurisdiction, and then concern about what happens to children if marriage doesn't work out. But the church has always maintained that marriage is a religious vocation. And because the church is pretty unsentimental when it looks at marriage, it doesn't mean you have to lack feeling. But it is about how you organize your thoughts about your marriage or, if you're signal, single, your hopes of being married. I wanted to talk a little bit at the beginning about Romanticism, which was actually a 19th century uh, artistic movement of famous Romantic poets, uh, Romantic music, and especially Romanticism in operas. And one opera I've always liked because the music is beautiful is from Richard Wagner's opera, Lohengrin. And it is this very romantic tale, and I'll tell you why I'm talking about it this morning. But Lohengrin is this story that comes out of, uh, of the medieval era, and it's about uh, the, the Holy Grail. And so the search for the Holy Grail, which is the cup that Jesus drank out of and shared with his disciples, his apostles, at the Last Supper, uh, had a huge role in med medieval uh, legends. But Wagner, who was this 19th century Romanticist, not a particularly a Christian, but a Romanticist, used it for his, his own storytelling. And so I want to give you this quintessential romantic story uh, that comes out of the 19th century and then connect it to marriage. And I think when I'm done, you'll understand the connection. So this is the story. There is this duchy of Brabant, and it is in disorder because the, they don't have a king. The son who should be king is missing, and 
there is this horrible man called Telramund, who I'll just call as the bad guy in the novel, because otherwise you won't remember the name. But he comes to the king um, that uh, is over this duchy, and he claims that Elsa, who is um, Gottfried's sister, Gottfried is the missing heir to the duchy of Brabant. Elsa, his sister, according to bad guy, uh, murdered her brother, and nobody can find Gottfried. But Elsa says, no, I've had a dream. A knight in shining armor will come and save me. Oh, but nobody believes her. And then she prays. And across the river, the lake, comes this big swan boat. And in the swan boat is this dashing knight in shining armor. He comes ashore. He challenges the bad guy to a duel. They fight it out with a sword fight, and the bad guy is uh, defeated and flees. Then it turns out Elsa and the knight in shining armor will now get married. That's the end of Act One. Act two is all about how the bad guy and his helper, who is the bad woman, uh, a witch basically called Ortrud, which is not a hopeful name, but how they conspire to undermine Elsa. Because Elsa wants to marry this mysterious knight who's known as Lohengrin, but she knows nothing more about him. When they decided to get married, Lohengrin said, I will happily marry you, but there's only one rule, and you can't ask about my background. It will be a mystery. And so Elsa agrees. So when you have a secret when you're getting married, of course, this is going to be the problem where people are trying to figure out what the secret is. And then the secret becomes the way that one person, uh, the fiancé, um, distrusts her fiancé. And so the bad guy and the bad woman, Telramund and Ostrud, begin to sow seeds of doubt in Elsa's poor mind. She's so conflicted, but she decides that she believes in her knight in shining armor, so she decides to marry him anyway. End of Act 2. Act 3. They are alone in the bridal chamber. And this is the connection, my friends. You know that song that was very, has been very popular at weddings? And it goes, It was the music that uh, I used as the intro to this podcast. It comes out of low and grin. The reason that has become a popular tune at weddings is because Queen Victoria's daughter used it in her wedding. And so then every romantic bride, Victorianism, right in the middle of this romantic period when Wagner is is writing and Mendelssohn is writing, this is where some of our wedding music comes from, Um, every romantic bride until the present day has kind of wanted the, the bridal march. In Lohengrin, it's the music that covers Lohengrin and Elsa, now married, going to their bridal chamber. And it's called the wedding chorus because everybody accompanies them to their bridal chamber and then retires. Well, once in the bridal chamber, um, Telramund eventually appears and he's going to kill Lohengrin. Elsa, who has asked her, has to break the one rule, wants to know who Lohengrin is, this is the question that brings apparently Telramund into the 
into the room. But Elsa still trusts in her knight and throws him his sword. He uses it and he kills Telramund. Well, long story short, get to the end of the opera and Ostrud appears and accuses Elsa of killing her brother and that Lohengrin is complicit in it. Lohengrin uh, says a prayer and then the swan boat that he came in, guess what? Turns out it turns to be the long, turns out to be the long last brother Gottfried. The swan turns into Gottfried. The king and Lohengrin make him the the new uh, duke of the duchy of Brabant, and then Lohengrin, with a long sad song, is going to go back because Elsa's broken the one rule and asked who he is. He's the son. It turns out of the Grail King, King Parsifal. There the mystery's now solved for you. But a dove leads him off back to his magical castle. And then the classic Wagnerian ending. Ostrud dies. There's never anybody who kills her. She just drops dead. Then Elsa drops dead, again, from um, unknown medical reasons. Both of them just passed away. Generations of opera, of opera lovers have been waiting for the autopsy to try to figure out why they both die for no apparent reason at the end of the opera. But Wagner uses this all the time as a way to end the opera because it's about romanticism. The idea that these um, supernatural kinds of loves, these transcendent loves, just can't happen in this world, that you can have the feeling, but at the end, it is consummated in death. Um, there is no afterlife in Lohengrin, but the idea of romanticism as being this tragic love, it clearly is rooted in these 19th century operas and plays and poems. And so the connection we get wedding music from Lohengrin. The reason that uh, women uh, wear predominantly wet white dresses at weddings is because in that same period of time, Queen Victoria, a romantic figure, Queen of England, she wore a white dress. And so isn't it interesting that these uh, wedding customs that we kind of take for granted, though they're, I think they're breaking apart a little bit, these wedding customs, I'll go back to this romantic idea. But as I pointed out, the gospel's not romantic. Um, romance is always going to be part of male-female relationships. But the gospel is about how the love of God forms and structures our human loves. And so let's take a moment and talk about the Christian understanding of marriage as it comes through the gospel today from chapter 10 of Mark. So you're asking yourself, is Father John Arnold anti-romantic? Is he against true emotion and love? And the answer is a resounding no. However, sentimentality is the enemy of love. Sentimentality is when emotionality outweighs every other consideration. Movies are sentimental when they get that tear at the end, um, but the movie itself is kind of silly. Emotion plays a huge role in our human lives, but it has to be in this larger context of responsible love. And so reason also plays, uh, 
plays a role in life. You may not be well advised uh, to marry somebody, no matter how attractive they are, if they can't be faithful. It doesn't really matter how, long, how much you love them, how much emotion you have towards them. The capacity for the marriage to be mutual and complementary is directly related to the ability of male and female, husband and wife, to have an adult loving relationship that places the good of others, especially the spouse, and the well-being and education of children as the key components uh, to a happy marriage. So think about this. Chapter 10, Gospel of Mark. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask this question. Is it lawful for a husband to divorce his wife? They were testing him. He said to them in reply, what did Moses command you? And they replied, Moses permitted a husband to write a bill of divorce and dismiss her. But Jesus told them, because of the hardness of your hearts, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. And in that passage comes the Catholic Church's uh, strong admonition that divorce is simply not permissible in a, in a Catholic marriage. What's at the heart of it is a completely romantic notion, however. And that is, love is not disposable. People are not disposable. Love endures till death and beyond. This is the key to this, to this. But it's lost on the disciples because as soon as they get along with Jesus, they say, how, how can we do this? And Jesus does not back off because divorce was practiced in the Jewish culture as it's practiced in our culture. Jesus doesn't back off on it. Jesus says instead that if you divorce, you are you, whether it's male or female, because in the larger Greco-Roman world, females could divorce their husbands, is, and this is, Mark is directed towards the Greco-Roman world, that you can't treat human relationships, marriage fundamentally, and your relationship with children as disposable. And so adultery results um, in, a, in a broken marriage. This is hard, but what's really at the heart of it is what the nature of love is, that love is not an emotion. Love is an act of the will where you choose the good of another. And it's directed towards children because if you're listening to the gospel this weekend, as soon as the disciples are done with their, oh, I can't believe you're telling us this, um, they try to get between Jesus and children. And then Jesus immediately says, um, don't keep the children from me. Uh, here's the passage. And people were bringing children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he became indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not prevent them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Amen, I say to you, whoever does not accept the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. Then he embraced them and blessed them, placing his hands on them. So marriage and children and uh, the kingdom of God all tied together as this image of, 
of love from the beginning. Can I point out something that I don't know that you've, you've thought about, but it's the relationship of the book of Genesis to Catholic sacraments. Oh, for instance, the Eucharist. I'm just going to hold this one up as, as an example. It's the, the material uh, that is the matter for the Eucharist is bread and wine. Bread and wine comports to what Adam and Eve were allowed to eat prior to their fall, which occurs in chapter 3 of Genesis. But what God gives them is every seed-bearing plant and every seed-bearing fruit. Read wheat and grapes, which are the, the matter that God provides for Adam and Eve to, to live on. And so bread and wine at the heart of this, of these uh, Palestinian culture, the Mediterranean culture, but it also ties back to this time before sin entered the world. Now, what's the connection? Well, if you've been paying attention. The sacrament of marriage, Jesus says when he talks about divorce, um, divorce was granted in the Mosaic law because uh, you were so hard of heart with Moses. But from the beginning, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Because they were one flesh, they were made male and female, they are reunited into one flesh in the sacrament of marriage, and it's this image of God and his people, why Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. Interesting point. Chapter 5 of Genesis, and this is the role of the father in marriage. Chapter 5 of Genesis, it says after Cain slew Abel, then Cain was banished, that Adam knew his wife Eve again, and they had a child named Seth. And Seth was made in the image and likeness of Adam. Well, why do we call children, and we refer to children, we think about procreation, because it's for God's creation and how father and mother play a role in God's creative act. That's why we don't call it just reproduction. Mice reproduce. Human beings procreate because we, uh, we participate in the creative action of God. But if you think about marriage, and if you are married, think that there's this natural part of it, this social, this civic, and then this sacramental part of it. And I'll talk a little more about it. But nature, man and woman, um, there's this rational part of it, hopefully you say, boy, this makes a lot of sense to marry this person. There's this irrational part, which doesn't mean it's a bad thing, but it's hopefully the feelings and emotions that you have that you don't make a conscious decision to feel affection. Um, it is just something that it's called a passion because it acts on you passively. Then there's the civic part of it, and the civic part of it is that your marriage plays this larger role. Um, you have a family, your spouse has a family, and then the larger community of schools and government. And then we say that that's a sacrament, that God takes all of that, and this is something about God's uh, intentionality about the role of man and woman and child being drawn to the kingdom of heaven. So what I want to mention uh, about this is to think about marriage and think about it theologically, not just emotionally. 
there's three kinds of bonds in marriage. The first is the male-female bond, and that's a natural bond. But, you know, the relationship between man and woman in marriage changes from their initial courtship to their wedding. And the boy, when the kids arrive, it really starts to change. And then when they become grandparents, it changes even more. It's still this basic male-female relationship unto death. But that is this big picture of man and woman in marriage. The second kind of bond in marriage is the relationship between mother and child because mom carries that child in her womb. And that is an absolutely unique um, experience for both mother and child. We all have the experience because we all had moms, although we're not all mothers. But the third kind of relationship is the relationship of father to child. And father, if you consider it, that bond is the first bond that a child will have that is not a maternal bond. Dad reproduces outside of his body. Mom reproduces within her body. Pope Benedict talked about this, and he said, why is God father? Well, the reason God is father is because creation is not God. The child has a father-child relationship with dad, like he has the image of that relationship and his relationship with God. If God were mother, it would be pantheism. That is, everything's God, the world's like this big womb that we exist in. But the image of God in the marriage is certainly made present, not solely, but in a very unique way in the relationship of uh, dad to his, to his children, daughters and sons. So think about it like this. The father is the image of the creator in marriage. Because men reproduce outside their body, men are in a sense of this first socialization of the child who learns to enter into a larger world that is not the world of mom. And so men play this unique role. Man and woman, obviously, have to cooperate, and they each bring this particular, their particular kind of love, masculine and feminine, to their relationships with their children. But God as creator, man as like the image of God the Father. Why do you think so many people don't believe in God because they had a bad relationship with their dad? Why do they, to some women say about abusive dads, how can they believe God is their father when they had a horrible dad? Well, reverse engineer it, turn it around. It's because there's something instinctive in us where we learn about the love of God our creator uh, through our father. Um, there's deep spiritual roots there that I don't know how to unpack. But I do listen to people's experience of their dads, and I think we all should just accept that dads are very important in the spiritual lives of their children. And so think about it also, uh, not just from the relationship of man, woman, mother, child, father, child, but also think about it in the ter uh, terms of how God's creation, God's creative intent comes through um, the father and the mother. Uh, in relationship with a child. Well, think about it like this, gentlemen and moms. Um, a salmon could be a father. He just squirts out his seed, then apparently turns over and dies. His uh, creative, his reproductive uh, purpose now ended. Um, the, the fry that come out of that have no relationship with dad. 
But human beings, that relationship with father is a lifelong relationship. It'll always be about how children think about authority and community. Um, because especially with, with boys, boys, um, boys are just different. And I think married people will talk about it. They can be more rebellious, harder to, harder to kind of, kind of reach. Uh, but dads are the image of what kind of man the son ought to be. And how does he image it? He images it because of how he relates to uh, the boy's mom and the respect with which he treats them, how he re relates to the boy's sisters and cousins, the other women in his life. Dad is imaging how to be a man in relationship. The three essential things of the natural relationship, biology is this non-rational relationship. It's, it's just men and women have bodies and our bodies do what they do. But the natural relationship that whether you're a Christian or not, every father, every mother um, uh, participates in is that they're the ones that provide for the child. And so if a child's going to be secure in life because dad and mom provided for their material needs, their emotional needs, and in a moment I'll talk about their spiritual needs, guiding them, giving them an image of what their life is supposed to look like, and very importantly, protecting them, this secure environment when kids can grow up to take adult responsibilities. So the natural and biological aspects of being a father and mother are just common to all human beings. But this is what your Christianity brings to these uh, givens of creation that every dad in some relation is in some sense the image of God the Father in even an atheist family, but in the biological and the natural sense, providing for, guiding, and protecting. These are the duties of all fathers and mothers. But let's, in the conclusion of this podcast, talk about spiritual fatherhood, why priests are called father, why dads are fathers in a very special way, and how it is that you as a dad and you and a mom cooperating with dad can raise children's understanding of their own humanity to a transcendent understanding of their meaning and purpose in life. Something I would point out, it was missing in the opera Lohengrin. It's the problem of romanticism. If it just ends in this world, this is why we have a crisis of meaning in Western culture. How important the work moms and dads do when they start from the position of being properly formed and observant Christians. Let's turn there now. Lohengrin. So what happens to the knight in shining armor in Richard Wagner's romantic opera from which we give wedding music from? Well, at the end, he just cuts out and he leaves poor Elsa and what's left? Death. This is Romanticism in the 19th century. Think about it as a story about the problem of just following nothing but emotion in a relationship between male and female. What's the crisis in men and women in relationship in our culture? People think that it's always about emotion, or I would say only really about emotion, and everything else is up for grabs. That is not what marriage is. Marriage and family 
are the core of uh, culture. It's the fundamental institutional building block of culture. And it's because human beings participate in nature. There's just this weight of nature on us. They participate in their larger social and civic life. But what I would say for Christians and why marriage is a sacrament is if it starts with that marriage is a religious institution, a religious sacrament that leads us to God, then it's going to form how you think about your natural life with your spouse and your social and civic life. Um, fathers are the ones that form future fathers to be good husbands to their wives. Fathers are also the key role because of who they are naturally to their children that form how daughters think about men and what they should rightfully expect in justice from men. Who needs the knight in shining armor that exits at the end of uh, Act 3, leaving nothing but destruction behind him? This is the thing about being Christian fathers. You cannot give kids what you yourself do not have. Why it's important for dads and moms to really take seriously their formation as Christians in prayer, moral action, and especially the choices they make in their families about how you spend time with your children, how you act in front of them. Does, dads, does the kids see a dad that prays with them and goes to mass with them? Or is what it really means to be a male is to sit on the couch and watch endless football games. Those are two um, different types of, of males. And what I'd say is, with my father, and I had a very good father, what survived 100 combat missions and two wars. But that man was a man of daily prayer. He prayed with us and he taught his kids to pray. I still remember the prayer he taught us. Oh my God, I offer to you today, this day what I think and do and say, uniting him with what was done on earth by Jesus Christ, his son. So uh, what I would say about me as a religious man is, boy, you're seeing the image of my dad in me. Um, great respect for my mom. Oh, they had their moments. Everybody does. But I don't think any of my brothers and sisters would say there was a lack of respect in our family between mom and dad. And then care for others. Dad not only took care of his kids in a very loving, dad could be very maternal. He'd bake bread, he'd cook for us, but he'd also take his fishing and he'd go to, our, um, go to the games when the kids had games. But dad also cared for people outside the family. Dad was a lawyer, and oftentimes people would come to me and tell me how it is that dad took care of them and never sent them a bill. Dad was a man of charity and prayer. That's, in my mind, what a faithful, formed male looks like. So, Lonegren, uh, do you want to be the knight in shining armor that just leaves for whatever's next in your life? Um, or... Do you want to be dad? And that dad leads his family to the Eucharist and dad leads his family to, to heaven. Um, wow, that is something very important for men and women to commit themselves to. Romanticism doesn't get us very far. The sacrament of marriage forms how we think about our bodies, about nature, the larger world we live in, and how we talk to our kids and prepare them for an adult life. This has been another episode of Oral Valley Catholic. If it was worthwhile, repost it. Hit like. Uh, do something to, to spread, spread the gospel. 
God bless you, and especially God bless your families. Um, I'm praying for you. Please pray for me. And hopefully uh, God sees us safely through. Goodbye. <laughs>